Okay, we're moving on through Genesis, and let's go ahead and pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you wrote a book for us. We thank you that you're still present with us. And we thank you that you have us each on a curriculum, a very individualized journey through a life of growth, and you know exactly what's going on in the hearts and minds of each person here in the week before and the week to come. And so we ask, Lord God, that you would reveal yourself to each of us today, that you would bless your word, and you would show us where we fit into the overall, and we give that to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now last week, um, we saw that God wants us to be all in. I use that phrase, all in. What does it really mean, all in? Uh, many of you even raised your hands declaring, yes, I want to be all in. I got like a rah-rah type thing. I don't like to do that because um, uh, sometimes when we make these declarations that I'm all in, we don't know what we're really saying. Um, we want to be all in, at least we want to want to be all in. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And that's a wonderful place to be. Now today in Genesis 18, we're going to see that there are benefits for those who are all in in this Christian journey, those who have decided to walk the walk. Now, next week in Genesis 19, we're also going to see there's a cost for those who choose to not be all in. It's a two-headed coin. So, for all of you all-in people, how did it go last week? You said all-in. I mean, what, what did God do last week? Did you see the journey? Did you see Him at work in your lives? Did you see... God at work, or, or did you recognize that it was God at work in your lives last week? Whether it be the flat tire or the unexpected income, whatever it was, it was God at work. We believe that to be true. And it can be difficult to see God in the midst of the ups and downs of any given day or any given life. But if we are sensitive, if, if we come at it from the right paradigm, the right perspective, we can learn. We can learn to see God in all the dealings of our lives. We can learn that. It doesn't come natural. We're self-centered individuals. But we can learn to see God's perspective. Would you like to see your life through God's eyes? Would that be attractive to you? Do you need perspective to make sense out of the journey that you're on right now? Well, God gives it to us here. Now, in chapter 17, Abraham, last week, Abraham had just had a significant encounter with God. And despite that encounter, it it takes time this week for Abraham to recognize God in his next encounter, just maybe a few weeks later. And before I read out of Genesis 18, I want to point out that in several places in the Bible, God declares that Abraham is his friend. He says, Abraham, my friend. Abraham is my buddy. Abraham is my friend. Isaiah 41 says it this way, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I chose, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. God's declaration. Now what's interesting is that we don't see in any of God's dealings with Abraham, God calling Abraham friend. He never said like, hey Abraham, you're my buddy. He declares it later, but Abraham never got told that. And that said, most of those who write about these such things declare that our passage today is the focal point of God calling Abraham his friend. That's what this passage is about. So you decide for yourselves as we go through it, just throwing it out there. I will announce beforehand that I am going to take a small rabbit trail. People say I'm hard to follow, that's all right. 
Uh, but when I do take the rabbit trail, I will tell you, this is a rabbit trail, so don't check out on me. Genesis 18, let's start to read from verse 1. Now, the Lord appeared to Abraham. I'm using the uh, NASB because that's what Gunner likes. Use whatever you like. Uh, now, the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from his tent to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. And he said, my Lord, that's a small L, my Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought and and wash your feet and rest yourself under the tree and I will bring a piece of bread that you may be refreshed. After that, you may go on since you have visited your servant. And they said, okay, sounds great. We'll come. Now, the first thing we have to address if we're going to get the most out of this passage, and uh, not only this encounter with God, but I also believe that this is the most important thing if we're going to understand next week's encounter, is this issue of Middle Eastern hospitality. Seems like a passing thing here, but it's a major showcase. And clearly, God wants us today to show hospitality. He, He has that in mind for us. And that said, I have had very little experience in the area of Middle Eastern hospitality. My time in the Middle East was both short and atypical. But for those who have experienced Middle Eastern hospitality, you can uh, kick in later and tell me if I get this wrong. A couple of quotes just from the internet to kind of fill us in uh, about Middle Eastern hospitality. Here's one guy. Uh, Hospitality is the Arabs' madness. We do karam, or hospitality, to excess. We waste food and spend all our wages to impress guests. And sometimes we don't even have enough money to clothe our children and send them to good schools. They take it serious. Another guy, uh, the desolate landscape that gave birth to three great monotheistic religions produced in their inheritance so great an emphasis on the virtue of hospitality. In the Quran, as in the Hebrew and Christian Bible, the mistreatment of strangers is a sure way to incur divine wrath. So they take it serious. One more. The sharing of food together was a token of friendship, a form of covenantal commitment. One of the most despicable acts in the ancient world was to eat with someone and then to betray them. And he quotes Obadiah 7, Psalm 41, and then, of course, Judas Iscariot uh, taking the morsel in John 13. This entire code of hospitality in the Middle East was so strong that uh, it evoked a warning Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Of course, quoting Hebrews 13 too. Now, there is much written on this subject, and if you're into it, you can study it for yourself. But just to to get a picture, that's what's going on here is hospitality. Now, still, this Middle East virtue of hospitality is in no way limited to the Middle East. Uh, We see it displayed in the Oriental cultures. Uh, in many European cultures, in the Pacific Islands, and uh, to be sure, in the southern states uh, of the good old USA, so happy Fourth of July plug. Virtuous hospitality is actually a reflection, I believe, of man being made in God's image. It's what God wants us to do. He's that way. It is a privilege and a responsibility of those who are all in. So what do I do, John, if I'm all in? Well, the first thing is you can show some hospitality. Really simple. And again, Hebrews 13.1, God says it this way. 
let love of the brethren continue. Do not, that's a command, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. So showing hospitality is a divine command for those who are all in. And some of y'all are really good at this. It doesn't come natural to me. It's hard. I'm not wired this way. Um, you ever had someone uh, so honor you with hospitality that it actually made you feel uncomfortable? That's what they're talking about here. You know, as a cop, I, I found it to be common that when we entered um, the home of any third world culture or the home of maybe uh, someone on an Indian reservations, uh, they would always offer us water and food and the best seat in the house, Grand, granddad's seat, dad's seat, mom's seat. Like they just, I mean, it makes you feel uncomfortable. And this was also my early church experience. As a young sailor, uh, we, our, our uh, Indian Ocean fleet, we all pulled into Perth, Australia, as I reminded us this morning. 9,000 of us split between five ships. And as I got off the boat, there were churches lined up wanting to show us hospitality and take us in and feed us and, ta- and do things with us. And it was an amazing experience. This was uh, also true of my early church experience as a young sailor and still younger Christian. I remember a church family inviting me home and to talk about the Bible. Like, that's a novel thing. Okay, I'll do that. And I, I get there, and the father directs his daughter to make John a sandwich, make me a sandwich, and bring him some food. And I was, I was so impressed by this gesture that I married that daughter. <laughs> True story. Hospitality is a real challenge for me. But it needs to be developed because God says so. I think of my neighbors, um, Lee and Stephanie, they, they are such examples of this. I, they, they bring people over regularly. They, I mean, they make them feel at, at home. Uh, if you need something, Lee will cut off his arm to help you or cut the tree or get the tractor or whatever. They're just hospitable people. And I'm just so put to shame by that. I love it. So, okay, that's all backdrop for this scripture. And I think you will see it is key in understanding chapters 18, chapters 19, and Gunner probably chapter 20 as well of Genesis. So, here it is. Maybe three weeks, maybe three months after Abraham's last meeting with God, you know that whole covenant of circumcision thing? Just a few weeks ago now, he sees these three strangers are passing off in the distance. And it's apparent that at this point, Abraham does not recognize these folks as heavenly visitors. They're just three people passing by. It's just, it's just Middle Eastern hospitality. So verse 6, so Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, make some cakes. And Abraham also ran to the herd. How old is Abraham now? Almost 100, right? 99. Abraham ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant, and he hurried to prepare it. And he took curds and milk and a calf which he had prepared and placed it before the visitors, and he was standing by them under the oak tree as they ate. This process of preparation was not a five-minute ordeal. I mean, there's some serious cooking going on. A banner in the house of one of my friends reads, stay long, talk much. That's the idea here. It's not this hurried thing. Abraham clears his afternoon calendar. He devotes the time to his guests. Imagine if Abraham had not done this. Think of the opportunities he would have missed. And we're going to see that. So there's actually a principle here. There's a principle here. I don't like long principles, but this is one of them. Friends of God, people who are all in, friends of God need to learn to recognize God at work in our dealings with the world around us. 
People who are all in need to learn to recognize God working in the places where he's put us. It's a journey. It's, it's something we have to learn. It doesn't come natural. God has assigned you uh, certain coworkers, certain family members, even certain waitresses, so that you are part of his dealings in their life. That's why you're there. Do you see these people as irritants or as opportunities? Or perhaps you don't see them at all. They're invisible to you. People who are all in need to go to the invisible and make them visible. Friends of God, people who are all in, need to learn to recognize God at work in the dealings in the world around us. And this is really about putting others in front of yourself. The, the secret is probably found in Colossians 3, one of my wife's on-the-wall verses. Colossians 3, 1 says this, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on these things, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is about getting our eyes off of ourselves and putting our eyes on things of the Lord, the things that are important. So let me ask you, how can you allow your siblings to have first choice ahead of you? Or how can you allow your co-parent to have first choice ahead of you? And you're smart people, I trust you can apply to whatever your situation is. So let's move on. So how, how do I learn to recognize God's process of causing us to learn Uh, in the following verses. Well, God uses a question to cause a revelation in the mind of Sarah and Abraham. It's God's method. He does it a lot. Uh, It's like when he walked to the Garden of Eden, he says, Adam, where are you? God knew where Adam was. It was a learning experience. I think we see this as an example of God's process of causing this. Um, God's revelation of God as God. That's what he does. So pay attention to the pronouns in the following verses, verse 9 and following. Verse 9, then they said to Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, there in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old. We've established that. Advanced in years, Sarah was past childbearing. We've covered that many times. So Sarah laughed to herself, (laughs) after I have become old, shall I have the pleasure, my Lord being old also? Verse 13, and the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Now, a couple of noteworthy things are going on here. First, we have to note the progression of God's revelation of himself as God to Abraham. This is how God works. To get the most of our passage, one has to look at it from a God-centric paradigm, if you will, and certainly not from the perspective of Sarah's lack of faith. 
How could Sarah show such a lack of faith? That's not what's going on here. The grammatical progression in the identity of the speaker from they, verse 9, to he and him, verse 10, to and the Lord, in verse 13, uh, makes it, uh, in, uh, seems to indicate that they didn't know this was God initially. And it starts to kind of build that way. Like, well, how could you not know what's God? Well, we have plenty of examples in the New Testament of people didn't, not recognizing Jesus. But God wants to reveal himself slowly so that they get it. Um, I don't believe that Sarah and Abraham knew that they were showing hospitality to heavenly beings at this point. I suggest they didn't, uh, that they did not uh, initially uh, know this. Um, the interaction between God and Sarah is really given as a means of revealing himself as God indeed. He wants her to get it. So the first step in learning to recognize God at work in your life and my life in the dealings around us is to recognize God himself as God. Just recognize God himself as God. Wait, he's God, I'm not. Oh, get a hold of that. We're small, he's big. We don't get distracted by the uh, one event, any one event in our lives. We, we rather learn to focus on God first. We have to learn to focus on God first. Uh, it should, that should be an overhead, focus on God first, right? I'll leave it out though. I'm thinking of the old hymn. You probably know this one. My goal is God himself, not joy nor peace, nor even blessing, but himself, my God. Tis his to lead. Uh, lead me there, not mine, but his. At any cost, dear Lord, at any price. You thought of that? Is, is your goal really God himself, or is your goal about what God can do for me? My first many years as a Christian was, to be honest, what can God do for me? I had a bunch of things I wanted. And now I'm starting to learn the blessing of like, wait, Hey, it's God I'm hanging out with. This is amazing stuff. Now, for you BSFers out there, the teaching aim, what's being taught to us in this passage, the main truth of Genesis 18 is this. God reveals himself to those who are all in. God wants us to know that he reveals himself to those who are all in. That's a blessing of being all in. If you want to know God, he'll reveal himself to you. And if you hope to experience that encounter with, with which God, in fact, if you, you, you do deeply desire inside yourself to have an encounter with God, if you hope to get that fulfillment of this missing thing inside of you, you must be all in. You need to mean business with God. And I appreciate so many people who pass through the church doors and we talk to them, you say, you know, I'm, I'm not there yet. Good. It's a journey. It's a journey. Be honest. I'm, if you're not there yet, you're not there yet. It's fine. You want to be sincere. That that does not mean that you have to be perfect if you're all in. Abraham's really going to drop the ball in chapter 20. He's going to do the Sarah is my sister again. Okay? Heads up. Or that those who are all in or are necessarily always in some transcendental, mystical sense of God's presence. That's not the reality. These great saints of God went decades without an encounter, without a, a, uh, encounter with God. But when you are all in, you will get glimpses of God in many unexpected ways. And that's what happens for Sarah as we continue. Abraham and Sarah's first clue that this is God is in God's choice of words. I will, he says, surely return this time next year. There's those I wills again. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son, verse 10. This tells us that it has only been a matter of weeks, maybe a few months since the episodes of Genesis 17, where God told Abraham, 
17.21, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. The I wills give you the first sense that this is God. And secondly, I trust Sarah and Abraham didn't miss the at this time next year. Like they probably got the little shimmers of something behind their neck. You've had this happen. Someone uses a, a special phrase or, or says, hey, you think to yourself, well, dad always used to say that. And you connect to it. A memory is stirred. And I think this is what's going on with Sarah and Abraham. But if not, there's more. Next, God does that thing that only God can do. God does that thing that only God can do. He knows what's going on in Sarah's mind. Satan cannot read your mind. Only God knows what's inside your mind. It's limited to deity. But it it seems like Satan knew that... No, Satan can predict. He's a wonderful psychologist. He's had at least 5,000 years of human experience to work on to figure you out. You're not that special. But only God knows what's going on in your mind. Sarah is veiled from view by a tent wall, by the bounds of her own mind, and she's sitting behind the guy. And this guy knows that Sarah inwardly laughed as she pondered the irony of herself being barren and having the pleasure of a child of her own. That's reading the mind. The knowledge of what's inside people is offered as one of the major proofs of deity. The Apostle John emphasizes this in regards to Jesus' deity. This is my rabbit trail, folks. Are you following me? I want to talk about deity here for a second. People call it the doctrine. God is God. There's your doctrine. So let me direct you to a very obscure, a weird verse in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verse 24. Very odd verse. This is at the end of chapter 2. You can just listen, it's fine. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew all men. It's like, what's that about? Well, that's actually, I believe, a heading for the next couple of chapters of John. John didn't interject the chapter uh, divisions. That came much later. And this is actually a heading. And then that statement, John goes on to prove that. In chapter 3, we see an interaction with a guy named Nicodemus. And with Nicodemus, Nicodemus shows up, and he meets Jesus by night. And he says, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a great teacher, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. To that statement, not question, to that statement, verse uh, 3-3, Jesus answers, Jesus replies and says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus answers an unspoken question. Jesus knows what's really on Nicodemus' mind, and Jesus cuts to the chase. Jesus knows what's really in your mind and heart and what's blocking your journey to be all in, and he cuts to the chase. It's the way he works. He does the same thing then in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, right? You know the interaction. The woman says to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not uh, be thirsty again and have to come here and draw. And he responds to her, Go, call your husband and come here. Oh, that. And you can read John 4 for yourself. A lot of dramas opened up. Jesus knew the heart of the issue. He knew what's in her mind. He knows the real issue. And this, I believe, is what we, are, was what we see in the interaction between God and Sarah. The scene is a revelation of his deity. 
He is showing himself to Sarah to be God. God is saying, it's me, God, but he is revealing it in a manner that allows Sarah and Abraham to also discover the obvious. Discovery is a powerful teacher. We can hear things from the pulpit, but when you discover them for yourself, then they mean something. And oddly, Sarah has received a lot of bashing from the commentators. If you read this sort of thing, uh, we hear sermons on Sarah's lack of faith, don't be like Sarah and laugh. And we hear about God's grace and not removing the blessing from doubting Sarah. Get a jealous for that one. Here you go. We don't bash Sarah here because it's not, it, it's not only supported by the text, that there's no Sarah bashing there, but the New Testament references to this encounter, the, the New Testament actually talks about this. They, seem, they don't ascribe any shame to Sarah in this. The author of Hebrews attributes great faith to Sarah when addressing this very issue of bearing a son, Hebrews 11.11. By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. That's what God says about this encounter. And on top of that, Peter actually uses this event as a demonstration of the superior qualities of a godly woman. Chaste and respect behavior, he calls it. First Peter 3, 4. I'll preach on this, Gunner, because I know you don't want to cover this. Take it to the stones at me. First Peter 3, 4. But let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. When did Sarah call Abraham Lord in our passage today? Right here, verse 12. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have the pleasure my Lord being old also. Some of your versions might say master, same thing. She's calling him Lord right there. And with that, we are given our key verse for this chapter. Our key verse, verse 14, here it is. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Let me ask you, is anything too difficult for the Lord? No, nothing is too difficult for the Lord. Can you, can you create a rock that's so big you can't lift it? No, God cannot be inconsistent with himself. But nothing is too difficult for the Lord. God uses the name here, which means the self-existent eternal one. Like, it's the big deal. Uh, L-O-R-D, the big capitals. God reveals himself in this way to those who are all in because we... As we learn to recognize God at work in the dealings with the world around us, there will come times, many times, when you will need a God for whom or which nothing is too difficult. You're going to need a God who can do the impossible. Those who are all in, those who are all in tools of God, 
in God's toolbox, we'll encounter many, many impossible situations in this journey we call life. There's many impossible things. And we need to know that God is the God who makes impossible things possible. We have to embrace that if we're going to survive. And when humans are, who are all in find that they are still, well, only human, and they embarrass themselves a bit, remember the self-existent, all-powerful God is also kind and patient. Look at verse 15. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. And I think of this last encounter between sheepish Sarah and God was a bit, he had kind of like a twinkle in his eye, if you will. That's just me thinking that. He'd made his point. The God who can do all is also the God who knows all. The God who can do all is the God who knows all. And I think the light bulb just snapped on in Sarah's understanding. Oh, this is God. Bing. And again, we see the aim that God reveals himself to those who are all in. And I think this is a place to maybe address this humanish appearance of God. What does this deal with God walking down there, having his feet washed, eating food? What is that all about? Gunnar kind of addressed this in Genesis 15. He talked about that covenant that Abraham made and God appeared and, and as, a, as a, uh, an, uh, a flaming oven and as a flaming torch and walked through the animals. And there was kind of that uh, appearance of God in, in a form other than just being like God. Um, this idea that God appears in human form is problematic. We address these things as they come because it seems to conflict with certain New Testament verses. Uh, for instance, uh, John 4.24, this is Jesus speaking. He says, God is spirit. Hmm. Okay, that's pretty definitive. That God is this invisible spirit reflected in many, many verses. Uh, take me to lunch if you want to talk about some, of the more, some more verses. Uh, but we add to the invisibility of God the unapproachableness of God. First Timothy 6, he says, He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in inapproachable light, whom no man can see or has seen. Hmm. But Abraham's, yeah, we have to reconcile that. Add to that the consequences of a mere man being in the presence of God. Exodus 33 says this, um, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Why wasn't Abraham vaporized? God cannot contradict himself. So, what are we to do with this humanish appearance of God? An appearance whose feet were washed, who ate food, who drank liquid there. Well, traditionally, we like to call these pre-incarnate or pre-birth appearances of uh, Jesus Christ um, uh, that's what's going on. Like, well, that was Jesus appearing. It's a, it's a theophany or a Christophany. Look the words up if you like that. Now, we get that from John 1.18. No one has ever seen God at any time, but God, the one and only who was at the Father's side, has made him known, has declared him. Only if you see God, you must be seeing Jesus. And then, of course, John 14.9, John uh, Jesus said to Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Oh, okay, that sounds about right. Maybe it's Jesus. Well, this... Uh, these pre-incarnate appearances of, of Jesus or of God, it's something we don't understand. And Gunnar and I have a more simple approach. We're satisfied uh, from today's passage in understanding this. In relation to God Almighty appearing to Abraham in human form, God says, is anything too difficult? Oh, 
God just did it. It's fine. It's fine. Okay, that's enough. But God, I, I don't understand. I don't, I don't see how you can do that. I don't. Does it bother you that you have a God that's bigger than your pea brain to understand? I mean, don't you want that kind of God who's bigger than your situation and bigger than you? Okay. So God's a, God's, God is able to appear however he sees fit. And we'll just say, Selah. That's the end of it. Now, as to the three visitors, they depart the camp of Abraham. It's time to go. And we get another glimpse of uh, into the process of Abraham's learning to recognize God at work and his dealings around him. And watch this, because it may be part of the way God is training you as well today. So verse 16. Now, as we read 16, consider Abraham overhearing this conversation. He's walking and he's listening. Verse 16. Then the men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteous and justice. So that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And with that, there can be no doubt that Abraham's fully aware that this is God Almighty he's walking with. He's encountered God. He gets it. So who is this conversation for? Is it for God speaking with the angels? Or is it for Abraham? I suggest this conversation is for Abraham, for his training. Now, catch the odd wording used by God who knows everything. Look at verse 20. God's wording, this is God who knows everything. Verse 20. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to, the, to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know it. Then the men turned away, and they went towards Sodom, while Abraham was still standing by the Lord. Did the God who knows everything need to visit the earth and Sodom and Gomorrah to know if the outcry, in fact, was true? No, he knows. He knows. If this scene was not arranged to enlighten God, then for whose benefit was the whole thing orchestrated? For Abraham. God created a scene, a visit, a meal for Abraham's growth, for his learning, for his teaching, so God can have an encounter with Abraham and Abraham with God. And friends, this is how God teaches us to recognize God at work in our dealings in the world around us. He arranges events. He arranges experience, experiences. He arranges failed contracts and betrayals, training scenarios, so that we can put into practice what we know to be true about God. And that's what Abraham does. Verse 23. Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? This is not a challenge. But it's an affirmation of what Abraham knows to be true of the character and nature of God. That's not like God. He wouldn't do that. Now, how does Abraham know that? There's no Bible written yet. But Abraham knows it. And so he says, suppose there are... 50 righteous within the city, will you sweep away the, 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 the whole place? And for the, will you save it for the sake of the 50? Verse 25, far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. 
Here it is. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? He's not challenging God. He's stating what he knows to be true. The judge of all the earth. Abraham gets this is God. Abraham is appealing to God based on the things that Abraham knows to be true of God. Follow this. Abraham is appealing to God based on what he knows to be true of God. And take this to the bank. This You can hang your hat on this one. Put it to the test. The most powerful, the most effective, the most empowering means of intercessory prayer is found in telling God about himself. Praying his promises. Praying his verses, praying his attributes to him. He likes to hear them. He likes this sort of thing. Lord, we know that you are the God who can make impossible things possible. So please, I beg you, will you? Lord, we know that your word will never return to you void. Will you take this and touch? We know that whatever we ask, according to your will, you will do it. And Lord, here's what I need. We know that you will not lose any who are in the palm of your hand. They can't escape you, so would you take care of We need you to protect the helpless. What do you know that's true of God? These are the things that you can directly pray to God. Some of you folks know the secret of getting on your knees and just praying through the Psalms, just praying through certain verses. It's a powerful and effective tool, and you will see God act. Why? Because he's bound by himself. He's God. Interacting with God about the situation in which he has placed you, about the issues he has arranged to confront you, is not putting God to the test. Rather, It's the means by which God reveals himself to those who are all in. God's waiting for those prayers. He wants to reveal himself to you those ways. So application, let me ask you. What are you asking God for today? What do you need from God today? He's organized situations in each of your lives. Life and death situations. Happy and sad situations. Fear and security situations so that you'll interact with him and be his tool in the interactions of the lives of others. Which of his promises can you put before his throne today? What can you trust him for? Do you know his promises? They're in the book, folks. They're in the book. Do this and allow him to reveal himself to you in extraordinary ways. But I'm not all in yet. Well, then do this. Get to know him better. I don't know many people who have never prayed. Even my pagan friends have prayed when they need to. What the one guy say, as long as there are tests in school, there will always be prayer in school. Yeah. (laughs) Abraham shows that he has really taken this concept to heart. And catch his humble but persistent presentation. Verse 26. So the Lord said, if I find Sodom, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. Amen, the end? No. Abraham says, oh, well, uh, Lord, uh, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the 50 are lacking five. Will you destroy it because of the five? God says, no, 45 are fine. Hey, why is Abraham being so persistent? Who lives in Sodom? Lot, his, his nephew, he loves him. 
He knows he's about to get wiped out. That's what's going on here. This is begging. This is serious begging for his nephew Lot. Is there anybody that you're seriously begging God about? Maybe they're not living in Valley Center now. They're in a distance. You have power to influence their life way over there. Beg God on behalf of them. Abraham's begging for the life of his nephew. It's serious. This is serious business to Abraham. This is not word play. He's not playing with God. Verse 29, suppose 40 are found there. On the count of the 40, okay. Then he said, verse 30, Oh, may the Lord not be angry. I'll just speak. Suppose 30? 30. Now, behold, I have ventured to speak. Suppose there's only 20? Okay, 20. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry. I shall speak only this once. Suppose it's just 10. God says, yeah, I'll spare him for the 10. Abraham has mastered the right amount of humility over against the right amount of persistence. And as soon as he finished speaking with Abraham, the Lord departed and Abraham returned to his place. Boom. End of the chapter. Wow. What an encounter with God. Imagine a prayer life like that. If Abraham had let those three visitors simply pass by, think of what would have what he'd missed. And I wonder how many opportunities for growth and for interaction with God we have missed because we have let opportunities for hospitality pass us by. And because I believe that this stuff we preach is true, I say with confidence that God has postured each and every one of you, each of us, in environments where we may learn to recognize God at work in our dealings with the world around us, if we enlighten ourselves, if we open our eyes. But the question is, are you all in? Are you still all in? Do you want this? Hospitality, I don't know, man. So what's your takeaway going to be? And I've got to say, the cop in me, I just got to say this, this doesn't mean, young ladies, that you should be picking up hitchhikers. (laughs) Okay, I'm just saying that right now. And next week we'll talk about letting certain kinds of people into your house, but that's another story. So what's your takeaway? Will you, will you actively look for God in your daily doings? Give it a try. See God at work. Say, God, how are you at work in this? Is there someone who you need to allow to go first ahead of you? I get the front seat, and I'll let them have the front seat. How could you possibly prioritize the structure of your life and maybe the structure of your house so you can better show hospitality. Something I need to think about. And how will you learn more truths about God so that you can more effectively call on God to activate those truths in your life and the lives of others? This is serious business. Okay, before we wrap up, I have to draw your attention to to the other side of the coin. There's a rest of the story. Just as there are benefits to those who are all in, there are consequences for those who choose to not be all in. And we're going to see this next week with Lot. Lot is definitely one of God's children. He's one of God's own, to be sure. But he was also not all in. And some terrible, th- terrible things resulted from that. So choose wisely. Let's pray. Lord, a lot of stuff in this passage... 
Will you help us to not miss the opportunities to display hospitality as you bring those opportunities across our bow today and this week? And help us to cooperate with your efforts as you cause us to learn to see you at work in the unique positions you have cleverly placed us. Let us each recognize you in your encounters with us and show us the benefits of being all in. We invite you to do that, Lord God, because you're the God that can do whatever you choose to do. Nothing's too difficult. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.